Welcome and thank you uh, for joining us today. Uh, it is August 15th, the two-year anniversary of the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan. I'm Dan DeLuce, national security reporter at NBC News, and I'll be your moderator for today's discussion. Joining me today are three experts on Afghanistan and the region who will discuss the current state of affairs two years since that U.S. exit and where things may go from here. Uh, our focus will not be on everything that preceded the withdrawal or the withdrawal itself, but what has transpired since that day. Our first panelist, anyone who has paid any attention to Afghanistan or Pakistan uh, knows her name, has read her work. Kathy Gannon formerly served as news director and chief correspondent for the Associated Press covering Afghanistan and Pakistan for 35 years. She was the only Western journalist allowed by the Taliban to return to Kabul during the US-led coalition's assault on Afghanistan that began in October 2001. In April 2014, Kathy was seriously wounded, hit by seven bullets while covering preparations for Afghan's national elections when a police officer opened fire on the car that she was in. After undergoing 18 surgeries, she returned to Afghanistan and Pakistan to cover the Taliban's rise, elections, and sexual abuse in Islamic madrasas. Our second panelist, Edmund Fenton Brown, is a former British diplomat and coordinator of the UN Analytical Support and Sanctions Monitoring Team concerning the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, and the Taliban. He and his team tracked and reported on the implementation of sanctions against US, uh, UN-designated groups and affiliated individuals. Within the UN, he was responsible for assessing the global threat from these groups. Previously, Edmund served as British ambassador to Yemen and regional counselor for the Arabian Peninsula. He's served in Riyadh, Cairo, Kuwait, among other locales. Our last panelist, Bill Roggio. Bill is a senior fellow at FDD and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. He also has a podcast. He's president of the nonprofit media company, Public Multimedia. Bill was embedded with the US Marine Corps, US Army and Iraq forces in Iraq between 2005 and 2008, and with the Canadian Army in Afghanistan in 2006. From 1991 to 1997, he served as a signalman and infantryman in the US Army and New Jersey National Guard. His articles have been published and incited in major news outlets such as CNN, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and others. Uh, just a quick note, they want me to mention that FDD has operated as an independent nonpartisan research institute exclusively focused on national security and foreign policy. FDD does not accept foreign government funding. So welcome, let's uh, get started. What a pleasure it is to join you. Bill, I will turn to you first to set up our discussion. Can you give us please an overview of what's played out on the ground in the two years since the United States left Afghanistan? Well, first, Dan, uh, Kathy and Edmund, thank you again for joining us. It's, it's a real pleasure to have you all. Um, I've been in contact with all of you uh, during the various points uh, up until, until and after the withdrawal. And uh, I can't think of three uh, people I would rather have this conversation with. It's uh, welcome to our panel. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, it's been an interesting two years in Afghanistan since the Taliban takeover. And, but I'm going to, I don't want to rehash the past here, but our failures, U.S. failures, the Afghan government failures in Af Afghanistan um, uh, were decades in the making. And it, it all culminated with the decision to withdraw that begin, began under the Obama administration, was pursued with that ridiculous peace deal, so-called peace deal with the Trump administration, and then President Biden's uh, ill-thought-out withdrawal that really gave the Afghan government no chance whatsoever to recover. Um, that, that all led to this bad decisions, uh, inability to understand the nature of our enemy, a lot of wish casting with um, believing that the Taliban would moderate, would incorporate or um, share power with an Afghan government, um, a lack of understanding of the, the enduring ties between the U.S.-Taliban relations. And this is important now because, because I think the U.S. is making a lot of the same mistakes 
when assessing what the Taliban is and how it's pursuing its policy in Afghanistan today. It's, it's treating the Taliban as a partner when today, after the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Taliban is the dominant, it, it is the government of Afghanistan. It, it has resurrected its Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. The Taliban has near total domination of the security situation in Afghanistan. It, it is ruthless, ruthlessly put down um, the national resistance, like groups like the National Resistance Front, the Afghanistan um, Freedom Front. Uh, they're, they're subjugated to these minor guerrilla insurgencies. Um, groups like the Islamic State Khorasan province, which a lot of people think is the real threat that emanates from Afghanistan. It's a minor player. The Taliban holds all the cards. The Taliban has can muster hundreds of thousands of fighters. It controls all 34 provinces. It has the weapons and ammunition and bases and war material left over from the U.S. withdrawal. That was the material given to the Afghan military. So it's able to dominate the security situation there. But the, the Taliban alliances with terror groups has flourished since the U.S. withdrawal. And keep in mind, those alliances were strong while the U.S. was present there. Um, the, a recent report from the, the um, analytical support and sanctions monitoring team, which Edmund previously led, um, excellent reporting from that group over the years. It's, it's been an integral part of my work in helping to understand the nature of the threat. Um, it's saying there's six provinces where Al-Qaeda is running training camps. Um, the Al-Qaeda is running safe houses in multiple provinces. It has a media operations center in, in one province. Um, in one of these camps, Al-Qaeda is training suicide bombers for a group known as the Movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, which is basically a, a, an Afghan Taliban subsidiary. Its leader swears allegiance to the, to the emir of the Afghan Taliban. Uh, the, the this is Afghanistan is essentially reverted back to pre 9-11, except there is no Northern Alliance to resist the Taliban. The Northern Alliance prior to 9-11 controlled any at different time points in time, anywhere from say 10 to 20 percent of the territory in Afghanistan. Today, the Taliban is in full control of the country. Um, and Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups do not operate training camps within Afghan territory without the explicit support and approval of the Taliban. The, the UN report, the sanctions and monitoring team report, um, also noted that several, dual, what I would describe as dual-hatted Al-Qaeda Taliban leaders are serving within the Taliban's government. Uh, two of these individuals I had tracked for well over a decade and detailed their ties to both Al-Qaeda and the, and the Taliban. So this is the, this is the situation we see today. and. You know, there is this, uh, this, I call it the peace of the Taliban. It's, there, there is no active fighting like it was on a daily basis while the US and uh, NATO were present in Afghanistan. But that's because the Taliban is ruling in, in an oppressive way. It's ruthlessly puts down its opposition. So while there may not be fighting, the Afghan people are suffering under the harsh rule of the Taliban. and. Um, the Taliban, by the way, back to the, the point of terrorist groups, the Taliban denies that terrorist groups are even operating within Afghan territory. Um, and this is, this is, you know, this is another one of the Taliban's big lies. This was part of the Doha agreement. And I think, you know, yes, we could look at Al-Qaeda. Remembers Ayman al-Zawahiri, the last emir of the Taliban, was killed in a safe house in Kabul almost, uh, just over two years uh, ago, or I'm sorry, just over one year ago. It was on July 31st, 2022. Um, that should have been all the evidence we needed that uh, that Al-Qaeda had, had believes that Afghanistan is a safe haven for it. Um, but these training camps, what we're seeing today, the, 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 the Taliban support of the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, which is actively launching an insurgency in, um, or has been active, actively fighting an insurgency in Pakistan, launching attacks near daily, deadly attacks that are impacting um, both Afghan uh, refugees there, as well as Pakistani civilians and soldiers and police. The, the Taliban is, it's destabilizing the region, even as regional governments want to create ties to the Taliban. This is a, 
very dangerous situation, not just for the United States and for the West, but for the entire region. Bill, thank you for that. Um, if I could now maybe turn to Kathy, uh, I'd like to get your reaction to that. And also, what can you tell us about how life for Afghans has changed since the Taliban seized power and, and how maybe it hasn't changed? Mm -hmm. and, and I just wanted to read one thing to you. Uh, Lynn O'Donnell in, in Foreign Policy Magazine wrote, uh, two years on, Afghanistan's people are mostly bereft of rights, education, jobs, and hope. Is, is that overstating things? Um, yeah, I, I think it, it's not um, as straightforward. Um, I think just, and, and not to, to go, go backward, but <clears throat> just to have a, a context between now and then, um, <clears throat> if you asked um, people, there was a survey done in 2018, and people were asked, do you have any faith in the future? And so I, that goes to your question of hope. And barely 3% said they had any hope for the future. That was in 2018. Um, so um, I think you have to, if you're looking at where they are today, you have to say, well, you know, when um, the, two years ago, the, the poverty level was 54%, the 85% uh, of the um, ink uh, of the money in Afghanistan came from outside, all of which stopped once the uh, Taliban took power. Now, and also to say, and, and, and Bill makes some very good points, of course, as he always does, um, first the Taliban and, and uh, were not coming into Kabul on August 15th, and I'm not in any way uh, suggesting that they wouldn't have, but they weren't coming into Kabul on August 15th. Um, there was um, Hamid Karzai, and I did talk to him at length, and Abdullah, that we're on their way to Doha. Had uh, President Ghani not left, and this is also the opinion of those, that had President Ghani not left, had he stayed there and allowed for a negotiation, it might have been a different, um, arrangement in Kabul um, post-August uh, 15th, um, President Ghani chose to leave. Um, has things changed dramatically for Afghans in the past two years? Um, let me say that poverty was, was excruciating um, in many parts of the country before um, the Taliban arrived. It has been exacerbated, of course, because of uh, the lack of, of international money um, that, that is there. Um, Girls, girls and, and women are the, 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 the greatest victims post-Taliban. And so I'll say that right up front. Um, and, and that is not to say that most Afghans do not want girls to be educated because they do, but there's a lot of, of uh, nuance to that and how they want them to be educated. And the, and the reality is, is outside of the cities, there's a very different, um, not that they don't want the girls to be educated because they do want education, but it looks different than what you might think in Kabul it would look like. Um, and, and also if I could just to give a little bit of a context, um, yet another survey, and this time it was in 2019 and men were asked, um, do you think women have too much freedom uh, right now? And the majority of the men in Kabul at that time said, first, they would not want their wives to work. And second, they thought the women had too much freedom. That does not in any way suggest that people support the, the, the horrible um, and regressive edicts. Absolutely not. But the reality is, is in Kabul, and I want to say, because I haven't been there since May last year, uh, women are out. Yes, they are, you know, fully covered. Um, they are out in groups of women. Um, they are not being beaten in the street every day, but they are out. And, and, and yes, there is a problem with going to school, with work. Uh, it's very, very difficult because you have such a large number of widows. So it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult situation for women and girls. The other side of it is security is better. Yes, you could say what the Taliban were responsible for a lot of that security problems. Absolutely no question. But so was the government. And if you, you look back, and it was the Department of Defense, I believe, who said there was an ISIS person within um, the security detail of the um, former NDS head. So, so, so it's very, it's, the allies were a very murky bunch as well. Um, uh, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda chief Osama bin Laden was not brought to Afghanistan by um, the Taliban. He was brought to Afghanistan by Abdulazul Sayyaf through territory, um, through areas where um, Masood was in charge, um, the 
former uh, minister in the post-Taliban government, gave a speech welcoming him uh, to Afghanistan. So it's not a real cut and dried situation in Afghanistan. It's a deeply complicated one. And the allegiances to these militant groups, to different people, is a very complex uh, picture. Um, are the Taliban a threat to the US? Um, because that's clearly, I think, more of an importance to most than is the situation of Afghans. I mean, really, 20 years you were there, um, spent billions of dollars, billions of dollars. Um, and even today, very few people are in Afghanistan to look outside of the capital and outside of the elite. There's a 38 million people in that country. It's a very complicated country. And so for me, I just wanna make the point that the situation there is not as black and white, good versus bad. It's a very complicated, but people are, de are, are for sure economically deprived. Um, it's a serious situation for, for, for their own um, well-being in terms of uh, their families. Women and, and, and girls are suffering, especially widows who cannot easily find work and, uh, to, to support their family. Um, the other side of it, the corruption has been um, significantly reduced, which has given more um, money into the economy. Um, yes, the Taliban do not share power. No question. Absolutely. I was there during their last time in power between 1996 and 2001. Again, did not share power. Absolutely true. Um, would it have been different had Ashraf Ghani stayed? Had there been some more negotiation? Had Ashraf Ghani been willing to negotiate and not hold on to power? Um, perhaps. Um, is the NRF, the National Resistance Front, is that any different than, I mean, they, they were in power for 20 years. Um, when the Taliban were in power between 96 and 2001, and I'll wrap it up real quickly, um, there was very little resistance. There wasn't a chance of a military um, uh, uh, defeat of the Taliban during that time. Um, the Northern Alliance was limited to a small part of Tahar province. Then Badakhshan province during that time stayed with the uh, Northern Alliance. This time, it was one of the first provinces to fall. There's a lot of reasons for that. And, and a lot of reasons is there was no um, commitment to the government of Afghanistan from the soldiers. There was, they, 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 they didn't feel a part of it. So there's, it's such a complicated situation that, that to try to give it a, a black and white, good versus evil, these are the bad guys, these are the good guys, very difficult. But in the end, Afghans, like they did for the last 20 years, like they did when the Soviets were there, because I was also there then, have always been caught in the middle. And while people say we're doing this for Afghans, rarely, rarely is that the truth. Thank you, Kathy. Um, I want to return to a point uh, introduced by Bill about the Taliban's relationships to extremist groups across Afghanistan. Edmund, uh, the UN monitoring team recently published a report detailing the persistence and presence of groups like al-Qaeda, a group President Biden had said was, quote unquote, gone from Afghanistan. But of course, other officials uh, in the administration have acknowledged al-Qaeda is still present in Afghanistan, as is, of course, the ISIS affiliate. Um, and the intelligence community has talked about al-Qaeda having a safe haven in Afghanistan, uh, but that they seemed preoccupied with their uh, immediate local situation and were not in a, didn't seem to be in a position to organize external attacks. And uh, some of Al Qaeda's threat, according to the intelligence committee, depends is contingent on its relationship with the Taliban. Uh, tell us more, Edmund, if you could, uh, about that relationship and, and how the Taliban regime uh, relates to not only Al Qaeda, but, but other extremist groups. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, let me just put a, a little bit. Sorry, Kathy. Sorry, this was for Edmund. Sorry. 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 I apologize. <laughs> thanks, Dan. Um, and, and thanks for the invitation to participate in this splendid event with these incredibly distinguished contri contributors. Uh, it's really hard to follow the uh, tour de force of expertise from, from, from both Bill and Kathy, um, but I will try. Um, there are in fact two recent UN reports. One, one was published in June purely on Afghanistan uh, and the second was published last month uh, with a global focus on ISIL and Al-Qaeda. 
Um, and I'll draw from, from these um, in my answer. Now, the monitoring team, which I used to be the coordinator of, it draws on its, it draws reporting from UN member states, including their intelligence and security agencies. And the United States is one of the monitoring team's most important sources of information. Now, the team's reporting is clear that Al-Qaeda and a number of associated extremist groups are present in Afghanistan. The impressively surgical strike that President Biden ordered to kill Ayman al-Zawahiri just over a year ago did not eradicate that Al-Qaeda presence. It is true that none of Al-Qaeda's top leaders are currently located in Afghanistan. Zawahiri's successor, Saif al-Adl, is in Iran with several other Al-Qaeda senior leaders. But Al-Qaeda retains its long-standing partnership with the Taliban. And Bill spoke of the training camps. In fact, you know, I, I need to thread myself around Bill's remarks because he's He's already done a very good job of representing some of the main features of the uh, monitoring team's reporting. He also referred to the Taliban's lies about the presence, or rather what they claim to be the absence of uh, foreign extremists in Afghanistan. Something that we had to deal with throughout my time with the monitoring team was that the Taliban, regardless of the strength of the evidence presented, would just lie every time that Al-Qaeda were not there, foreign extremists were not there, um, they even lie now about al-Zawahiri having been killed uh, in Kabul. They say there's no evidence to that effect. It prevents al-Qaeda from actually crowning Saif al-Adl as their leader, because if they do so, they would actually be contradicting the Taliban's narrative. So there's a, there's a sort of comic dimension to that as well. Um, al-Qaeda has regularly renewed its Pledge of Allegiance to Taliban leader Hibatullah and his predecessors. De facto Interior Minister Siraj Din Haqqani is a close associate of Al-Qaeda. Indeed, some have said he is effectively a member of Al-Qaeda's leadership. And the US authorities, of course, still have a bounty on his head. The regional Al-Qaeda franchise, Al-Qaeda in the, in the Indian subcontinent, AQIS, is present in Afghanistan partially embedded in Taliban-controlled military and paramilitary forces. Al-Qaeda author, authored doctrine is being taught in Taliban military units. And Abu Ikhlas al-Masri was reported by the monitoring team uh, in February to be active again in eastern Afghanistan and reactivating an Al-Qaeda-associated special forces unit. Now, you... You ask about the views of the current US administration, or that's a, this, this implicit question of why we have this sort of, uh, a little bit of political turbulence around this analysis. My understanding is that not all US agencies and departments agree among themselves. Some agree with most of the monitoring team reports. Some do not. The more cautious voices in the US reflect the absence of good options to address Afghanistan under Taliban control. And the sincere belief, I think, that the threat from Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan is adequately mitigated by you know, the over the horizon capability, uh, the potential for operations like the strike on uh, Zawahari. I myself would agree that neither Al-Qaeda nor ISIL in Afghanistan currently has the capability to strike US interests but I don't agree that we can assume that beyond the short term. And I would love to see this overall analysis on this issue depoliticized. Thank you. Really fascinating, Edmund, uh, that was interesting. Um, Bill, I'd like to get your response, but I wanna read something to you first. Um, the, in, in, the, in February, in the intelligence community's annual worldwide threat assessment, to Congress, uh, they addressed Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, and they said, Al-Qaeda viewed the Taliban's seizure of power as a victory for the global jihad, but that the death of uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri in 2022 will, quote, disrupt the group's plans in Afghanistan. And also it said, Al-Qaeda probably will gauge its ability to operate in Afghanistan under Taliban restrictions and will focus on maintaining its safe haven before seeking to conduct or support external operations 
from Afghanistan. And it said the threat from Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan will depend on the Taliban. Um, what, what's your response to what Edmund was saying and also to that intelligence assessment? Yeah, I, I, they both, um, I, I actually agree with that assessment. And obviously I agree with it, what Edmund had said. So the, the problem here is capacity. Keep in mind, you know, what I see a lot of officials and analysts do when it comes to the threat of Al-Qaeda from Afghanistan or any other place is they make the assumption, well, Al-Qaeda hasn't launched an attack from there today or probably won't be able to do it next week or next month. It, to me, it's that capacity building that is the real threat. Al-Qaeda, you know, from its founding in the early 1990s up until 9-11, built that capacity over time. We had, you know, the terror attacks in 1998 in Kenya and Tanzania, and then US, you know, US officials were assured by the Taliban that Al-Qaeda would be restrained. And then we had the US coal, USS Cole, and we had 9-11. Those attacks took, you know, were planned and executed over the span of a decade. It was, they, it was in the making. But yet officials want to look at the short term and the, you know, today and, and be able to assess this threat. They, my concerns are, are long term, midterm and long term, building that capacity. So, and, and trusting the Taliban in order to keep restrictions on Al-Qaeda. I agree that is in the Taliban's interest for Al-Qaeda not to plot external attacks from Afghanistan. It's also in Al-Qaeda's interest for the Taliban to maintain its Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. They're both, in my estimation, in agreement that it is wise and it is, my biggest concern is what I see here is strategic thinking from both the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. It allows the Taliban to stay in rule. It allows Al-Qaeda to continue to run these camps and to train, and it gives it safe haven for its leadership. It gives it the ability to, to regroup. And this, to me, is the real threat. We can't just play this way. And, and as far as the assessments, when, you know, recently, as you had noted, President Biden said that al-Qaeda was done, that the Taliban, he, he, he intimated that the Taliban did our bidding and eliminated al-Qaeda. Nothing could be further from the truth. If this is the information that he's getting from our intelligence services or the information that is being filtered up from the intelligence services, then we have a very, very big problem um, in our ability to assess our enemies. How did we lose Afghanistan? Yes, uh, listen, I agree with Kathy. There's a lot of problems with the Afghan government. Uh, corruption was a big problem. But in the end, the United States failed to understand the Taliban failed to in, understand its ideological fervor of its commitment to supporting foreign terrorist groups, it, its deep cooperation with these groups. And if, if we now believe that the Taliban is the guarantor of our security, we are making a massive, massive error. And you know, it may not come back to bite us next month or even next year, um, but I, keep, I don't want to give our enemies. I don't want to give Al Qaeda and other terrorist groups time, space, and resources to plot their next attack against either here in the homeland, against U.S. interests, or against our allies, or or within the region. It's this is a very dangerous stage if we consider the Taliban to be our ally in this effort. And this this is largely, you know, we think that the Taliban could be uh, an effective counterterrorism partner because of their opposition to the Islamic State. But that's only because the Islamic State and the Taliban are mortar enemies. Uh, the Islamic State wants the Taliban to swear allegiance to its emir, and the Taliban wants the primacy of governance in, inside of Afghanistan. And that is the conflict between those. If the US didn't support the Taliban one iota, those two would still fight it out. And, the, and at this state in the game, the Taliban holds all the cards, holds all the advantages. So we don't need to ally with the Taliban for it to fight with the Islamic State. Um, but if we think that the Taliban is going to fight, if it's going to suppress Al-Qaeda, we are making a monumental mistake. Uh, Kathy, um, how has your time on the ground informed your perspective on 
the Taliban's relationship with Al-Qaeda and some of these other uh, extremist groups? And, and how do they see uh, them as perhaps ideological allies or merely just uh, a practical partners for a practical purpose? Uh, and, and how is that dynamic playing out now that the U.S. is gone? Yeah, um, I think the whole militancy um, picture in Afghanistan is a very complicated one. Um, there has certainly been um, a number of militant groups. I think at one point they said, I don't know, a smaller and larger ones, there were, you know, dozens. Um, and that, that included during the time that the U.S. was there and with the uh, those in the government. You had the BLA, the Baluch Liberation Army, had a headquarters in Kandahar. Um, Hamid Karzai, you know, talked to him about it. You know, it, it was it was well known that the head of the uh, Baluch Liberation Army blew himself up building a suicide uh, uh, uh bomb in in southern Kandahar to use in in Pakistan that was during the the um the government's uh the the when the republic was was there when when the U.S. was was there in NATO so it's a very complicated a lot of of these um um militants that are there have been there either for years they have allegiance yes they, they they've sworn allegiance to the taliban many many if not all were there before the taliban even came to power um they were there during the previous government that that was uh, allied to the u.s uh the training camps were were, were all there um ideologically gobadine hekvichar and uh abdul Razul sayoff and Jalaluddin Haqqani, who's now dead and, and, and take the heiress, Sirajuddin Haqqani, probably have a greater uh, um, allegiance or, or not allegiance, but ideological um, uh, marriage with the with the uh, with Al Qaeda. Um, if I can also say that further complicates it, in 1994, um, the Masood's government, uh, Professor Rabani's government, gave Afghan citizenship to 880. Arabs in Afghanistan. Um, so when the Taliban say, well, there are no foreign militants, a lot of them were given Afghan citizenship by those the US then allied with in 2001 post-Taliban. So the militancy issue is a very complicated one. You're absolutely right when you say that and there is close relationship. Um, are they dependent on one another? Um, I think Al-Qaeda certainly is more dependent on the Taliban. The Taliban certainly in terms of their staying power, um, I don't think is that dependent on Al-Qaeda. Um, I think that the TTP, the, the Taraki Taliban Pakistan, um, have a basis there. Um, some of them are allied with, with portions within the Taliban. Some are not allied within portions within the, the Taliban. So what I want to say that to look at Afghanistan as particularly dangerous just because the Taliban are there um, and that they alone are the um, providers and, and ideological uh, partners of these people is, is a mistake. It's a much more complicated picture. And if there's a real interest in, in getting beyond just um, uh, um, the Taliban are liars or they're this or that and trying to really understand the, 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 fabric of the militancy within Afghanistan, within Pakistan, how they're related, how far they go back and to whom they're related, um, maybe would be more of a, a, an ability to, to move forward in the future. So do I see them having a relationship with Al-Qaeda? When the Taliban first took power in 1996, they had no uh, allegiance to Al-Qaeda. Um, and Al-Qaeda was fighting with Gobadine Hekmachar and they were fighting with, with uh, uh, Sayaf against the Taliban. The Taliban then brought all the Arabs to Kandahar post uh, uh, 1996, 1997, when their first time in power. The Kandaharis during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, Southern Afghanistan very rarely liked to have the Arabs. They took their money, but they didn't really like to have the Arab militants among them. That was in the east of Afghanistan, where Jalaluddin Haqqani, who was a very close ally of the CIA and former CIA guy when I was going back to Afghanistan post 2001, he said, you know, if you see Jalaluddin Haqqani, tell him I said hi, he was a really good guy. Now his son, of course, is very close with, with Al-Qaeda. So was Jalaluddin Haqqani. When the Taliban fled in 2001, Jalaluddin Haqqani was given the, the, the mandate to take all the Arabs out of 
cobble, get them into a safety. So, so that's more in the East. So are they dependent on each other? Al-Qaeda probably more. Uh, Taliban don't really need them. Um, in the Afghan papers that Whitlock, uh, Craig Whitlock uh, put together, wrote in 2018, um, or 2020, I can't remember, very clearly said, mistake at the beginning was conflating Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And, and, and not to say that there isn't relationship, but it was conflating them and going, seeing them as both. Also mistake, getting in the middle of a civil war. That was another bit of a, an error there. Anyway, that's, that's my take on, on it. That's, that's fascinating. Um, I wanted to pull back for a minute and look at, if we could, at uh, the wider global uh, perspective. And Edmund, I'd like maybe for you to help us start with that. Uh, you know, what, uh, what are Ch Russia or China or the U.S. doing? How are they uh, navigating and uh, engaging or not? with the new rulers of Afghanistan. Yeah, thanks, Dan. I, so I touched upon this when I mentioned the absence of good options in Afghanistan. I think in a way I'm saying, in a way what I'm saying is a sort of a flip side of the same coin that Kathy's referring to. Um, this is a complicated situation and there are no good options. The question is, you know, what are, what are, what are the, how, do you, how do you make incremental progress and what are the least bad options? Um, now, it's not just the US, NATO and the West that find Afghanistan perplexing, having invested 20 years of blood and treasure only to find that we're pretty much back where we started, where we started with the Taliban in power. Russia is also aware of its own recent failure in Afghanistan, and it remains cautious in that arena at least. China has global ambitions and Afghanistan, besides the mineral wealth that China covets, uh, potentially fits with its Belt and Road initiative. But China is cautious about its ability to secure its interests in and around Afghanistan and is aware of the Taliban's uh, relationship with Uyghur extremists in Afghanistan. The US, China and Russia are all concerned about the incubation of extremist groups in Afghanistan and the potential future terrorist threat that could emerge from them. But none of those countries feels immediately directly threatened. And therefore, CT is not driving policy in DC, in Beijing, or in Moscow. All share a broader strategic interest in stabilization of Afghanistan and its immediate neighborhood, and lack any clear idea of how to achieve that. And this helps to explain why the UN Security Council deliberations on Afghanistan have remained consensual and constructive, despite tensions that have made agreement impossible on many other issues, especially since the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine last year. The UN Security Council has not been able to develop a new approach to Afghanistan since 2021, but it has successfully passed rollover resolutions to prevent crisis at the expiry of various Afghan-related mandates. Now, I'm a little concerned that the tendency of some outsiders to play up the threat from ISIL Khorasan. It is a threat, and it has the potential to grow into a bigger one. But Bill, I think, nailed this when he talked about the disparity in the size and capability between ISIL-K and the Taliban. And sometimes the ISIL-K threat is used as an excuse for other policies. In some cases, a reason to engage with the Taliban on counterterrorism. And I agree with Bill that that is not uh, a good idea. Um, and of course, we can expand on that later, perhaps if there's interest, but I, I don't want to get into that, go down that rabbit hole just yet. In other cases, inflated estimates of ISIL-K's manpower and capability are used to frighten smaller countries, to make them more welcoming of protection from others. Lastly, I'll say in response to your question that in some ways, the most interesting question is not how the US, China and Russia are navigating the Afghan challenge, but how Pakistan and India, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, Turkmenistan and Iran are navigating it. Now the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, how, sorry, how the Shanghai Cooperation Organization relates to the challenges of Afghanistan. 
And of course, this then links back into those wider great power strategic interests that concern China, Russia, and indeed the United States. That was a very good, um, very good portrait painted there. Bill, do you want to uh, maybe join in and discuss in part, not only what, what Edmund was talking about, but there is obviously this dilemma for Washington. Uh, the US, of course, does not recognize and has no formal diplomatic relations with the Taliban, but there is this tremendous humanitarian crisis unfolding there, uh, kind of an economic freefall. And the US and other countries are providing uh, humanitarian aid through the UN, uh, trying to get money to Afghans uh, but without having to uh, send the money directly to the to the uh, Taliban regime, uh, but nevertheless, obviously, uh, some of the money uh, presumably might end up in the Taliban's hands. Uh, are you? Uh, what do? You, how do you see all that playing out? And and it is it, that's a pretty brutal choice, isn't it? It's uh, recognizing the Taliban and legitimizing it somehow versus uh, you know letting people starve. Yeah, well, first, I, I would like to add some what Edmund said, but I, I think I'll, I'll pass. He, he summed this up nicely. I mean, there's a lot to add with Pakistan. I, I will briefly mention this. The Pakistanis, um, look, they supported the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan for reasons of strategic depth. And it suffered from the, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan or Tariqi Taliban, Pakistan, um, violent insurgency that was killed, estimated tens of thousands of Pakistanis. I've heard over a hundred thousand. I don't think we really know the number. And yet the, the, the Pakistanis understood that the Afghan Taliban supported the Pakistani Taliban and looked past this. Now that we see hundreds of Pakistanis are being killed in this renewed violence, if the Pakistani government didn't end its support for the Afghan Taliban, um, back then, I see little reason for it to do so now. It's a cost that the very cynical gov government that does not think of its people, um, does not think of its soldiers and policemen on the front line. And uh, so this this is a very big concern that if we think that Pakistan can rein in the Afghan Taliban, it wasn't willing to do so years ago, and I don't see that it will be now. That's the strategic depth that Pakistan seeks is to oppose its real, what it believes be its real enemy in the region, which is India. Uh, as far as the funding of the Taliban, billions and billions of dollars in US aid has flowed into the hands uh, or into Afghanistan since the US withdrawal. And Dan, you, you said it very well. This is an extremely difficult and I think a really hard choice that the US has to make um, in the international community. The Taliban is skimming large portions of this aid to fund itself which in turn allows the Taliban government to persist, to survive and to thrive, and which allows various terrorist groups to operate training camps on its territory. So we are in, in ways we are funding our enemies. And the, you know, in my estimation, we have to view the Taliban as a terrorist regime. Sirajuddin Haqqani is a specially designated global terrorist. His Haqqani network is as well. Um, he is the one of two deputy emirs of the Taliban, as well as Edmund noted, his, the minister of the interior, which is issuing passports and ID cards. That the UN report also notes this to the to members of Al Qaeda and their families. We are. I, I feel for the Afghan people, and, and we should be doing everything that we can to ensure they're receiving medicine and they're not starving. But if it's done in a manner that funds the Taliban and allows it to provide support and safe haven for terrorist groups. We just can't do it. Our opportunity to help the Afghan people ended on August 15, 2001, when Kabul fell. And two weeks later, when the US withdrew its last soldier from Afghanistan. If we think that we can influence the Taliban, we believe that the Taliban is gonna moderate and have an inclusive government and that it actually cares about the people that live under its harsh rule, we're mistaken. And, you know, asking U.S. taxpayers to foot the bill for, for a Taliban government that supports terrorist organizations, it's, 
it's wrong on so many levels uh, for security reasons, for moral reasons. Um, I, you know, it's hard for me to say this, but I will tell you this, many Afghans who I've spoken to agree with this, that USAID should not be flowing through the Taliban because it is merely propping up the Taliban regime. Kathy, um, I imagine you might have uh, some some uh, viewpoint on this. And also, could I ask you, Thank you specifically on Pakistan, given your experience there, uh, Pakistan was the source of so much frustration in Washington uh, throughout the, the U.S. military presence there. The U.S. is now gone. Um, how is the is the exit of the U.S. and the Taliban uh, uh, takeover uh, being t being received in in Pakistan? How is it how is it affecting Pakistan? How is it Pakistan influencing uh, events in Afghanistan? Sure. Thank you very much. Yes, I would like to address a few of those comments. Um, first, the to make sweeping statements that the money is being siphoned off without, you know, specifics and 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 to not be in the country. Uh, it's not about recognizing the Taliban. Um, the Taliban is the government. It's the de facto government because it controls the area. But it's about diplomatic relations and how do you to measure them out? How do you how do you do it? But you can still be in country. Afghanistan is a country of 38 million people. It's not the elite in Kabul and it's not the expats that everybody speaks to. And to try to understand the larger country and what the, the Afghans really are looking for and need, it really is important to have more people in country. Um, whether they're siphoning off all of the, the money that's going in, I, I don't know where that evidence is. The, the Taliban also, and I'm not saying they're not, I'm just saying that they're, where is the evidence? Um, also, I'm, I'm also questioning um, if, if, you take away all the assistance to, to Afghans, 38 million people, how are they surviving? Before you left, the 80% the, the of all the money of, uh, that was available for anything, healthcare, everything, came from outside. Now you want to take it away because you think it's all going to the Taliban? Um, so I, I think there's a real difficult dilemma, and I, I think it has to go beyond these sweeping, you know, the Taliban are stealing all the money, it's better not to give any aid. For five years when the Taliban were last in power, between 96 and, and 2001, they were sanctioned, there was no money coming in, uh, they banned drugs. Um, they weren't in danger of being militarily overthrown despite all of that. So I think there has to be some deeper thinking on, on this and how to get beyond that. On the Pakistani front, let me say, um, yes, uh, um, post-Taliban uh, takeover, um, the TTP have, have uh, in, increased their, their attacks. Um, the, um, it's destabilized the uh, border areas, um, the, um, the relationship between Pakistan and the Taliban. Uh, there's been numerous uh, battles along the border. Pakistan has put, it, put in a fence. Um, the previous government re uh, rejected it. The Taliban rejected um, Pakistan got itself into a real uh, um, difficult situation, um, having supported the, the, these militant groups and then trying to control these militant groups are two very different things. So right now in Pakistan, um, you say the government doesn't care about its people, the government doesn't uh, uh, care about its soldiers, doesn't care about, I don't think that's fair. I, I mean, I think, I think the, and, and the military to be clear, makes the decisions on Afghanistan mostly. So, and they do care about their soldiers, um, how they see fighting their, uh, who they see as their enemy, which is India is a different thing. Now, now they have their security, uh, concerns. Afghanistan has its security concerns. America has its security concerns. And I just want to say that, that um, there is a, a huge problem now in terms of, of the relationship between Pakistan and Afghanistan. Pakistan has gone in and it, it bombed the, the, the border areas, killing 42 people um, because they were attacked. So they went across border attacks. Um, and that makes the whole situation very volatile. Um, also for India, because it, it also wants to have some relationship and, and, and both countries, Afghanistan, Pakistan and India, both have issues with each other. ISI uh, plays, plays silly games, so does the Indian intelligence. And so I just think, again, to try to oversimplify and put on any one uh, uh, person, country's head, all the responsibility, 
does nothing for anybody in terms of moving things forward and making life a little bit better for Afghans, 38 million of whom are inside the country and trying to figure out how to move forward. And uh, yeah, so I don't know if that answered your question, but there you go. And no, you, you, you covered a, a many points there. Thank you. I should just point out, I think just for this conversation, for context, what the World Food Program has said about the situation in Afghanistan. It says the humanitarian crisis of incredible proportions has grown even more complex and severe since the Taliban took control of Afghanistan. Job losses, lack of cash, and soaring prices are creating a new class of hungry in Afghanistan. 15.3 million Afghans are not consuming enough food. It says acute malnutrition is above emergency thresholds thresholds in 25 out of 34 provinces. Uh, and then, of course, you have a debate going on now uh, uh, among development aid groups and human rights groups about how what the U.S., what the West should do. Uh, it is this kind of Hobbesian choice. Um, and uh, you have Human Rights Watch saying that uh, the U.S. should uh, ease some of these restrictions on banking uh, that would allow uh, more aid uh, to flow. Uh, because as you know, the US and other governments in the World Bank Group revoked the credentials of the Central Bank of Afghanistan after the Taliban takeover. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I want to uh, keep moving on here. Um, Bill and Edmund, do you have anything else you wanna add for the moment or can we go to the question and answer section? I just want to add one quick thing. Kathy asked about where the evidence is. The, the Special Investigator General for Afghan Reconstruction noted recently that the Taliban is siphoning, siphoning off uh, money. You know, the, he explained how they testified. No, no, what he said, no, no, Bill, I, I, no, I listened to that. And, and, and what he said is, is that, and, and his explanation was, Um, if you look on TV, you see Elan. So where's the money going to? And a lot of poor Afghans. He didn't give evidence. So I, I just want to say, and, and thank you for that, but I just want to say, because I listened to his entire um, presentation to the, uh, uh, the, to the Senate, I think it was the Senate committee, and he did not give evidence of the, the uh, specifics of any siphoning. He just said, well, you know, we, 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 we believe that they will be because look at, you know, they're not suffering, but the people are suffering. So no, I think, I think there has to be, and I'm not saying that they're not, but I'm just saying there has to be a real strong um, and, and, and systematic look at things, not demonizing them and, and, and putting them so that everything that can be said wrong, you can say it and nobody questions it because then you're, you're, you're risk, you have the risk of saying, well, so you, do you support them? Of course not. But all I'm saying is that if you don't look at things clearly and with, with evidence base and, and try to take a larger look instead of just, well, you know, what else would they do? You know, the people are starving and they're not then they must be siphoning it off. I, I just think it's, it, it, that's just my point. So just for the record, um, there was a report that was commissioned by USAID and it, that report uh, said the Taliban, quote, appear to view the UN system as yet another revenue stream, one which their movement will seek to monopolize and centralize control over. Um, that's what that report said. But of course, there were some pretty severe accusations against the previous Afghan government. So now we will go to uh, questions that have come in, if, uh, if you can uh, bear with me. One of the questions was, uh, why don't I, I give this to anyone who will take it, but we'll start with Edmund. One question was, with the US military and Western militaries departed from Afghanistan, how uh, can uh, the US and others gain uh, an, an accurate picture of what's going on, and, and particularly when it comes to these extremists or terrorist elements? Yeah, um, the, obviously less, less well, less easily than was the case when you had the presence in country. Um, you know, the, 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 the concept of an over-the-horizon CT capability is not a completely empty one, but it's a flawed one. Um, 
I'm talking to experts, you know, people who've been engaged in, 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 in this kind of kinetic CT. Um, you, you lose two things. You lose tempo. You can't maintain any kind of tempo of, uh, of taking out uh, terrorist leaders. And you also lose uh, accuracy and you're much more likely to make mistakes and, and also to kill, uh, you know, to, to incur um, collateral civilian damage. Um, so, and I think, it, you know, we shouldn't forget that the United States and indeed um, some other countries have very significant uh, knowledge of what's happening in Afghanistan, even in present circumstances. They have extremely developed intelligence capabilities, um, which enable them to have a very detailed, nuanced picture of what's uh, of what's happening. Um, but uh, I, I, you know, I, I see the I see the satisfaction that that will have yielded in the case of the Zawahari operation. It was a sort of a uh, some people took it as proof that you could do this thing even though you weren't in country. But the problem is that uh, you can't sustain it and you're likely to make mistakes. And so it's a much blunter instrument. Excellent summary. Bill, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, uh, just really quickly. In December, I believe it was of 2021, General McKenzie said that U.S. Uh, ability to see inside Afghanistan, U.S. intelligence capabilities was reduced from one to two percent of what it was when the U.S. was present in Afghanistan. And I always go back to a, you know, U.S. assessments in Afghanistan of Al Qaeda strength, for example, were very deeply flawed um, for six straight years. Nearly there was an estimate that Al Qaeda had 50 to 100 um, fighters and operatives in the and leaders within the country. And that was all shattered when the U.S. conducted a raid on an al-Qaeda training camp in Shurabak in Kandahar in October 2015. So al-Qaeda was, and this was a camp that a, a general said was the largest training camp they had seen since 9-11, not just in Afghanistan, but in the world. Um, was, that was at least the, 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 how he had stated it. Whether that's true or not, that's what he said. And uh, upwards of 200 al-Qaeda fighters and operatives were killed. Um, there were actually two camps, um, and uh, Al Qaeda was running a media operations. They didn't find out about the existence of this camp until they, until a couple months prior, when they conducted a raid in eastern Afghanistan. So I use this as an example of how things are happening and what we didn't know about what was happening in Afghanistan while we were there. Um, if we think it's getting our intelligence is getting better and we're more effective now that we're not there, um, uh, well, we we should seriously reconsider that. What about we we talked a little bit about China, but I'd like to come back to that um, and, and Russia, if that's if we have time, uh, because there was a lot of talk about uh, Afghanistan's tremendous mineral wealth and lithium in particular, in particular. And when the U.S. was still there, this was considered a great promising future for the country over the long run. Uh, it, it was referred to as the, the Saudi Arabia of lithium. Uh, it, it, is this now going to be basically uh, in, uh, exploited uh, by uh, the Chinese uh, government as part of its kind of global Belt and Road efforts? Uh, what 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 is that? What is what is the status of lithium and China and how China wants to operate in in Afghanistan? Um, it, Kathy or Edmund, it, it, who wants to take that? It, I, I'll, I'll defer to Edmund after, but I, can I just say, um, yes, China is involved and China would like to very much uh, um, exploit that. Be clear, any country or company would want to exploit it. It's financially a good business. So anybody's going to want to exploit it. Is China in there doing it? Yes. It, it, but China is also, as Bill so rightly said, and Edmund so rightly said, nervous about the Taliban and, and about their Uyghur uh, um, resistance movement. And so they are also talking with the Taliban about that. And that's really their main concern. Will they, will they try to exploit it? Absolutely. Um, uh, but to be clear, anyone else would try to exploit it too, if they could, to make money. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll defer to Edmund, who, who probably has much, much more um, detailed explanation. I, I mean, like, you know, not much in the way of detail, but I mean, really, I want to endorse what Kathy just said. I completely agree with that. And I think this is, you know, one of the key things I do want to get across before this webinar finishes is we've got to stop thinking in terms of 
uh, a zero-sum game between the West and the, you know, the neighbors. And China is one of the neighbors. Um, and yeah, China has inter economic interests uh, in Afghanistan and it has uh, signed agreements uh, which give it some rights over, over uh, Afghan minerals. And yes, Afghanistan does have a good deal of potential mineral wealth, not just lithium. Um, but if we ever want to get out of this nightmare in Afghanistan, the only way out is a sort of a neighborhood-led stabilization and future prosperity approach. In other words, we want China and Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and Pakistan and the others, we want them to succeed because the only people who have real leverage on the Taliban are the people directly across the borders who have no choice but to engage with them. And if that can be changed from a, 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 a relationship of conflict and, and suspicion over time into something more like mutual dependency and uh, a common increase in prosperity, that might hold the seeds of some kind of future for the Afghan people. It won't be easy to get there, but I think we have to stop saying, oh, you know, China's a threat in Afghanistan. I think that's a mistaken view. And, and if I could just jump in, oh, sorry. If mm -hmm. I could just jump in just really quickly, because I, I, I agree so much with Edmund. And that's why I think if it is gonna move forward, there has to be a way to, um, to, 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 to find a way to not demonize your, the, 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 the government that it is. Um, that doesn't say to accept it, that doesn't say to, to, to but it does say that if you want to move forward, there has to be some uh, um, interaction, there has to be some understanding of the on the ground realities by being on the ground and being, talking to people in a larger, uh, uh, area beyond Kabul, beyond the cities, into the to get a real feel. If I could say, um, with, in terms of intelligence, the greatest source of intelligence are the people. But most Afghans don't trust the U.S. anymore. Most people don't trust the West in Afghanistan anymore. And there was a book in 2018 about the Taliban narratives and and who won, who lost, and the U.S. and NATO clearly lost, and and. And a lot of that, I think you have to understand where the people are also coming from and what their thinking is about what the West's intentions are, what the U.S. intentions, and how that allows the Taliban to gain further uh, 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 grip on, on the people and, and how you need to understand that to be able to counter their narrative and to be able to, to address what the people in Afghanistan are saying. And, 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 and the Taliban have mastered that, that uh, uh, propaganda campaign. And the West and, and, and NATO and that, they completely failed at it to try to reach out to the people so that you can counter their narrative. And, and it's be giving the Taliban strength to be able to um, push against the West and what the West intentions are. And, and, and they spent 20 years making the West look like uh, um, they were, they were uh, the night raids, the killing of people. And there was, there were a lot of people, thousands were taken away in the first years of uh, post-2001 and put in Bagram just because they happened to be in, in, they happened to be in Kandahar and, you know, there's a lot of, and people taken to dark sites and people, uh, you know, so there's a lot of suspicion among ordinary Afghans and that allows the Taliban to uh, gain a further grip and to, to, to maximize, maximize their propaganda ability. And the, to, to move forward, there, you, you, if you understand better all of this, maybe there's a way to counter the narrative, to win over the hearts and minds of people, um, which, which over 20 years was impossible. And anyway, that's, that's the last thing. I was going to uh, give all of you a chance to give your concluding remarks. I feel like maybe you just did, um, but you can, you can, you get, I'll give you another chance, but um, Bill, uh, maybe I'll give you a, a, the final word here. Um, and, and, and then, uh, Edmund, you can, you also kind of had some interesting overarching remarks, but maybe you can, uh, chime in as well. What is, uh, excuse the vague overarching question here, but what is the way forward for the U.S. and its partners with Afghanistan? Edmund talked about, uh, not a, a lot of great options. Uh, and one has to be realistic, and that uh, maybe the best way forward is through 
the neighboring countries. Bill, uh, what do you say to that? Yeah, well, first, again, thank you everyone for joining us. This was an excellent discussion, one that we're really happy to have had. I do agree with Edmund and Kathy. We do need to figure out ways to work out with work with partners in the region, with the neighbors. And that does include China. You know, I think one of the biggest mistakes, not one of the biggest, but it, one, one of the many mistakes we made was not getting some buy-in from China. It did have a legitimate concern about the Turkestan Islamic Party. And, and um, you know, very, so, you know, by shutting out, but, you know, there were problems as well, such as putting too much trust in with, with Pakistan as the Pakistani military and intelligence services backed the Taliban as they took our money. So we have to be careful. Like we, the partners are important. Iran will never be a partner and it does play an influential role within Afghanistan, but the acrimony between the U.S. and, and Iran, I, I just could never see that. But somehow we do need to get the, because the U.S. is not going to send troops back into Afghanistan. That will not happen. So we need a, a policy of somehow of containing this problem. I don't think there's a way of weaning Al-Qaeda off from the Taliban. Um, I do agree with Kathy that the, these are complicated issues, but some of these issues are not very complicated. That Al-Qaeda-Taliban alliance is very strong. Um, we do need to be prepared to strike at Al-Qaeda when the time is right, if we detect threats emanating from that region. But again, this really, that's often reactionary. I honestly, looking at this for the last two years, trying to think of solutions, I don't have one solution. I think one of the things we really need to do is figure out how we lost Afghanistan. What are the mistakes? Until we understand the mistakes that we made, recognize them and talk about them in an honest way and not deal with the politics. Oh, it was Trump's deal that caused the failure. It was Biden's withdrawal. It was all of this. It was how the Bush administration assembled a central Afghan government where a president appoints district leaders. Think about that. That would be like the, pre the president of the United States appointing your local county commissioner. Like these are problems, you know, we didn't understand the Afghan culture. We didn't understand our so-called allies until we recognize all of these mistakes that we made and figure out how to move forward. I find it very difficult for us to think that we can manage this problem today and come up with a solution that involves complex actors such as Pakistan that has very real stakes within Afghanistan that use it as strategic depth against India. You know, I mean, I, I think part of the Pakistan problem is hoping that the people of Pakistan could truly elect a representative government, one that isn't beholden to the military. How do you break that problem? That isn't a problem that the United States can nor should try to solve on its own. Um, so, you know, I realize there's not very many solutions in what I'm talking about here, but to me, until you understand the problem, the problems and the nature, you know, how we got here, we're never going to come up with a very real solution. And, and, and I think politically here in the United States, there's so much, this, this and other issues are so politically charged that neither side really wants to get to the root of this problem. And the Afghan people suffer for that. Um, American national security suffers for that. We all suffer for it. And uh, that, that is the real shame here. Thank you, Bill. Um, I think we are running out of time now. So I will say uh, thank you to all those who tuned in today. Thank you to all of our panelists for your time. It was an excellent discussion. Kathy, we look forward to hearing uh, your insights in the future. Edmund, uh, also looking forward to hearing your perspective in the future about this part of the world. And I encourage you to catch Bill's podcast, Generation Jihad, published by FDD's Long War Journal. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you.